I find the busiest people never say they're busy. The least busy people are the ones who are freaking out about how much work they have to do in a day. And I started to realize there's a lot of time here. If you speak to anyone in the mortgage and the real estate industry over the last five years, they'd all be telling you the same thing. There's too much investors. There's too much foreign investment. There's not enough supply. There's too much red tape. Regulations aren't there to help first-time homebuyers and, and, and separate them from investors and second-time homebuyers. You don't need the newest iPhone. You don't need the newest pair of shoes. You don't need all the things. If you want to buy a house, you have to make concessions. Anyone can fail. The biggest giants can fall. Realize that it's not easy, but it can be a ton of fun. And it's, it's a great way to learn no matter what. Welcome back to another episode of the Generation Hustle Podcast. I'm your co-host, Sherison, alongside my good friend, Amin. And this week, we're back with another great guest exploring the real estate market. Episode 75 is with Jesse Abrams, co-founder and CEO of HomeWise. Recently distinguished by Next Canada as the Galen Weston Top Entrepreneur, by the American Marketing Association Hall of Legends as one of Canada's top five marketers on the rise, and by Marketing Magazine as a top 30 under 30, Jesse is an accomplished business leader, digital marketer, and advertiser. He has a passion for growing businesses and never settling for the status quo. HomeWise provides Canadians with a better mortgage process with a simple online application that uses human language, helpful content, and access to tech-powered professionals at every step to get a great mortgage. Their goal is to get the best deal and save their customers the most money possible. We sit down to talk to Jesse about his journey into entrepreneurship, how HomeWise is disrupting the mortgage industry, the current state of the Canadian real estate market, and much more. This is a great conversation that we hope you enjoy. Sweet. So on today's show, we have Jesse from HomeWise. So thank you so much for being on. Thanks for having me, guys. Sweet. So today we're going to kind of go into a lot of hot button topics. One, obviously, home uh, affordability and kind of where that's going. Um, we're also going to talk about, you know, your kind of background and skill sets of how you took your marketing skills, built out a business in a completely different industry, it seems. So that I'd love to see how entrepreneurs, you know, take those skills and kind of transfer those into other areas. But before we get into any of those uh, areas, I want to actually talk about your background in the sense that how did you become an entrepreneur? Um, and specifically, talk to us about maybe your early childhood influences, and maybe some events that you can kind of go back and say, those influenced me to kind of take the route of entrepreneurship. Yeah, it's an interesting thing too, because you don't just get a spark in your head one day. And some people might and say, I'm going to go do something on my own. Uh, both my parents are entrepreneurs. Uh, they both own their own businesses. They both came from very poor families and built something from scratch on their own. And I never heard them talk about a boss. Uh, I never heard them talk about the nine to five. My mom would get me come home at six o'clock at night, but a lot of her work was done in LA. So she'd be working till nine o'clock at night. My dad, the same way. And I, I grew up in that, that household where they were the masters of their, of their domain. They built their own businesses. I saw them build their success. I heard the bad times and the good times. And uh, it was something that was always really cool for me. And when we talk about influences, my parents are a huge influence in my decision-making and, it's funny, they're both talent agents. So nothing in the same space that I am. My dad was actually in marketing when I was a kid. And then he became a talent agent when I was probably 13 years old. But now everyone in my family is except for myself. My mom, my dad, my brother, my uncle are all talent agents and saw them build their own businesses and said, one day I'd like to do that myself in, in my own space. But uh, they definitely helped give that influence to get on the way. 
Yeah, any specific things like we often hear or that cliche thing about that lemonade stand or something around those lines. Uh, anything along those lines, which, you know, maybe help propel you uh, take that step forward into entrepreneurship as a kid or, you know, it just came to be when, you know, later in life, it's just something that you're fond of. It's an interesting one. So I went to McGill. I did a marketing degree in commerce and did the safe route there. And honestly, in fourth year university, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I'd be, I'm totally honest with you. I had a great internship after third year at Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment, like a classic hockey person's dream. Got to work with athletes. It was awesome. But even after the fourth year, I wasn't sure because I was, I was, I graduated in 2009. And that means my first year of university is when social media started to pick up. And I remember doing a project in 2009. Uh, they had us do it on the, the farm hockey club of the Montreal Canadiens. Okay. And everyone was doing TV campaigns and print. And I said, guys, we're going after millennials. I did a whole campaign on social ads and banner ads and YouTube videos. And I got a horrible grade. It was one of the worst grades I ever got in, in, a, in something I did at school. I said to myself, there's a market opportunity here. No one's seeing that digital is the next big thing. So that was one first thing that I saw was like, okay, there's, there's something missing there. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs see, okay, there's a hole in the market. So after university, I said to myself, I, I want to get into digital marketing and advertising because that was my skill set and I can start to build that. I wasn't ready to be an entrepreneur. I was 22 years old, bright-eyed, bushy tail. I had no idea what a business really was other than what I learned in a textbook, which let's be honest, 95% of the textbook was a waste of time. It was yeah. really the, the getting to know people, networking, and taking actions that makes a difference. Uh, so I worked in that for a couple of years, got lucky, won some awards. But as I was doing that, an unfortunate thing happened in our lives. One of my best, best friend's brothers unfortunately passed away. Um, he had he had autism and it was due to complications of autism. And this is one of my buddies I grew up with playing hockey. And he and one of my other friends came together and we said, why don't we do something to commemorate his life? And we actually started a hockey tournament. And his memory, in our first year, we set the goal to raise 10K, but we actually raised $150,000 wow. in the first year. Wow. Yeah. And the reason for that is we, we started a business. We... We said, we're going to hire, bring on great people to volunteer to help us out. No one got a single cent out of it, right? It was all for charity. And we said, how do we put key people in key roles? We brought in mm -hmm. friends in PR to them PR, people in marketing to do marketing, people in partnerships to do partnerships. And after five years or six years, we raised a million dollars for Arena Foundation. And that was my first foray to say, hey, I know how to be a leader. I start to see my skill set. After that, one of my friends from that group, we started a volleyball tournament called Serving for Sinai. We raised about 800K in four years and then COVID hit. But those are two things I said, okay, I think we can start to, to run a yeah. business. And, and those were interesting influences that happened in the background. A lot of people think your, your inspiration comes from what you do with the job. But for me, it was, I have so much time in my day. Like I find the busiest people never say they're busy. And the least busy people are the ones who are freaking out about how much work they have to do in a day. And I started to realize there's a lot of time here. So I worked in advertising. I worked at General Mills and Digital World. And I ran my own agency. And I started to realize, okay, I sort of started to have the building blocks there. And um, I'll, I can jump into the story on a different question of why home-wise. But that, those are some of the key influences, both family-based, but also just my network and, and the charity side really helped to influence. Yeah, and we'll, we'll definitely get... Uh, into the charity side uh, near the end of the podcast because I, I find that really interesting in terms of how you've leveraged some of those skill sets also also you know how it's real cool that you've 
again, transfer those skills of building something through charity into a business as well. Um, one thing that you mentioned through that conversation was, you know, you got a horrible grade kind of looking forward into something that a lot of people wouldn't consider. Um, my question here is a bit of a bit off tangent here, but do you think entrepreneurship can be taught in school? Because um, I always say like half these professors or I say most of these professors have never built anything in their life. They're just regurgitating something in a textbook. Um, yeah. And I often find uh, kind of troubles with that when they're talking about, hey, this is how you build a business, but you yourself don't know what's going on. Yeah, to not be, sound like a nerd, but to quote the matrix, it can't be told what the matrix is. You have to experience it for yourself, right? And you look at some of the top entrepreneurs that are university dropouts. And not to say that university doesn't train you to get there or an MBA doesn't, but some of the smartest people I know aren't entrepreneurs. It doesn't mean that your scholastic abilities and your high GPA is going to lead you to do that. It's sometimes that, that who you are on the inside and the passion you have and the ideas you have and the problems that you might try to face. And, and, and yeah, maybe you could help people out with some of the building blocks and how to yeah. be a good entrepreneur. Uh, we, I was part of that Next Canada program a, a year or so ago. And it was really interesting that they had someone come up and do a presentation. It was a, a top founder talking about how he works seven days a week. He doesn't really have a work-life balance. And there were people making comments in the chat saying, oh, this is affecting my mental health because I don't want to work that, that those many hours. And like, how do you expect me to do that? That's so demotivating. And I'm sitting there saying, I work seven days a week right now. This is what it takes to be an entrepreneur. If you want to be an entrepreneur, it's not a entrepreneur. If you want to do this, you got to realize that you're diving deep into something. Like I, even when you're not working every day of the week until 10 o'clock at night, you're not sleeping at night because you're thinking about it. And there, yeah. I can't tell you how many founders I speak to who suffer from the, the lack of sleep that I did. I bought two beds, well, returned to them and bought multiple pillows. Like if you ask my wife, she, she would tell you how crazy I am because I just wasn't sleeping for the first two years of starting a business. I'm always thinking about it, writing out ideas and I don't think it could be taught in school. I think it could be helped. I think you get ideas for it, but it takes a lot of a certain people are the ones who are, are built for it. And some just might be able to find a way there in the future, but it takes a specific breed. Yeah. And you just mentioned certain people are built for it. So this kind of brings me into that uh, limelight of, you know, entrepre entrepreneurship is often said to be kind of a lonely journey. So maybe mm. could you describe your experience thus far? You know, maybe you've mentioned the sleeping thing for sure. But, you know, how have you kind of personally tackled those down days and that kind of overall maybe negative experience that is associated with entrepreneurship? Totally. I'll say this much. I have major imposter syndrome all the time, right? And I think you'll speak to quite a lot of founders like that because I look at other founders who post this stuff on LinkedIn of like the beating chest, hoorah. Yeah. Like, Why aren't I doing this? And what's going on wrong here? There's great days and then you have those great days you're like, how is this going to end up horrible? And it's it's one of those things where every day is a work in progress. Uh, I have things going on right now that could be unbelievable for our business, but you the person reaches out to you with the opportunity, you speak to them, and then they say they'll get back to you the next day, and you don't hear back for two weeks. And you're like, what the heck is going on? Then you finally hear back, and everything's fine. But every day is a struggle as a startup fan to try to find that equilibrium where you feel comfortable. A lot of it is the experience too. They, they say there's a reason second time founders are more successful than first time founders. There's so many factors that go into it that there, there's yeah. a network you create. 
There's learning from the mistakes you made, but it's also focus. And I think that's one of the key things you learn over time as a startup founder is how to focus. And I don't learn that on my own. I learned that from talking to so many other founders, so many of the people in the industry as well. You don't just have to speak to founders to get advice. There's so many smart people who are working at companies in the VC space. Um, so that's, that's what helps me along the way is consistently asking other people for advice because I, I definitely don't have some of the answers, let alone all of the answers. And it's, it's one of those things where you learn all the time. Yeah. And I think just consistency to learn, approach the situation, maybe in a positive manner and, you know, having that expectation, like things might get better, um, and not knowing everything is okay. Like it's okay. Uh, and I think a lot of entrepreneurships get into that trap where it's just like, man, I need to know everything or and everything needs to be perfect. And that's where the failures start kind of adding up and things just going down. Um, so I, I'd like to ask you this. You're an entrepreneur now, but maybe in another universe, uh, what is Jesse doing and uh, what's his passion really? It's funny. I had a couple of friends over in the backyard last night. I, I love sports and I love being active. And as a kid, I was like, oh, I'm going to be a gym teacher. Like that's, it's such a funny thing to say, but I love the idea of being someone who could go and be active every day, help people build up in their lives, whatever. I'm not great physical shape. Like I don't work out at gyms, but I mean, just having fun and, and doing that. And it sounds crazy to say, but I also don't know what I would be um, otherwise right now. I, I, when I started in my career, if you told me I was going to be working in mortgages in eight years, yeah. I would say, what the F is a mortgage? Right? Like, I'll be honest with you, I had no idea what a mortgage was 10 years ago. If you asked me what a mortgage was, I'd say you needed to buy a house, but I couldn't tell you what it is. And I have all these dreams. I wish I was a hockey player, but I'm too skinny and awkwardly tall. It doesn't make that much sense of me. I'd love to be a basketball player, but I don't know. I played center because my friends are short. So, okay. it work out well, <laughs> right? There's a lot of things I'd love to do. And, and, and hey, maybe after home wise, one year, 10 years, 20 years from now, there's other passion plays I'd like to get into, but I'm so hyper-focused on home-wise right now that my mind doesn't even really go into those other areas because it just, I, I find the top founders in the U.S. that have billion-dollar businesses, they're already moving to their next business because yeah. they've, they've built that model. And when you're at, in the trenches like I am right now where you're building something, I try not to think of all the what-ifs and what can I be's. Um, and I make that joke about me wanting to be a gym teacher when I was a kid because I have no interest in being that as an adult now. That's not something I'd ever want to be. But it's funny how your aspirations at some point in your life could divert so differently. I wanted to be a veterinarian when I was 12 years old. I yeah, suck yeah. at science. Like, yeah. I think I got a 60 in grade 12 science. I was my worst, worst grade. How are you going to be a vet if you have no idea how to do the basics? So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a passion thing. It's something that's always important to me. It's something I'd, I'd love to do. And hopefully HomeWise is a big success and everyone walks away happy from it. But after that, I'd love to continue to do something I'm passionate about. Founder of a mortgage company, and you just said you didn't know what a mortgage was 10 years ago. And that's incredible. I think not a lot of people would admit that or even be willing to do something like that. And I think that's what brings me to my kind of point here is, you know, we love seeing entrepreneurs who've kind of made their way into different industries and just making use of their transferable skills and seeing how they can adapt what they already know and bring that um, to something, a new, a completely new perspective. Um, so like you said, your background was in digital marketing and sales before this. Um, you didn't know what a mortgage was 10 years ago. So like, can you talk to us about some of uh, those experiences and how they helped you figure out that roadmap to get you to where you are now with HomeWise? 
Yeah, it's funny. When I was in university, I said, I want to work in digital advertising, then I want to work in digital marketing, then I want to work in a senior position, then I want to start a company. Okay. I always had that plan. And the reason I had that plan is I remember there was this Harvard Business Review case study that said, if you have a plan, you're four times more likely to be successful. If you write it down, you're 10 times more likely. I didn't write it down, but I, I had the plan. And when I worked at, at, at Maple Leaf Sports Entertainment, it was so cool. My first night, I was taking care of Wendell Clark on the job. That's like a young hockey player's dream. But I learned a lot. I learned how important networking at the office was and how important it was to get to know people. And I started, each place I worked, I tried to parlay a different skill set. When I worked at Proximity and Digital Advertising, I, I learned that being proactive is really important. I would consistently try to volunteer to do different things, not even work-related, to try to get to know more people. And it sounds interesting that networking is a, is a single thread here because my CTO at home lies, Madara, I worked with that Proximity. One of our friend and developers, BJ, we worked with that Proximity in my first job. Why? Because I got to know them. And when we were working at 6.30 at night, I wouldn't stay up with my people upstairs. I'd go talk to the tech guys to get to know them better. Right. Then after that, I went to General Mills. And I was in, on the digital marketing team. And I realized, okay, no one understands digital marketing. This is crazy. So I tried to take a leadership role by doing lunch and learns, all these different things. And that tried to teach me, okay, I could be a thought leader somewhere. And I could persuade people. I could create change. And at General Mills, from my first year, we went from a 3% digital marketing spend to roughly 20% by my fourth year. Right? That's a massive difference when you're thinking of a huge company. And that tried to show me, okay, I can create change and change the minds of, of dinosaurs in quotations because that's what they would call themselves sometimes, right? Uh, and then I went on to a place called Engagement Labs, which became Beyond Marketing Group. And I started to learn about how to build the business, how to be entrepreneurial, but also one of our biggest clients was one of Canada's biggest banks on their mortgage business. And that's when I first got that first influence of, there's a big opportunity here. And they basically called us in. They said, we really understand Gen Xers and Boomers. Don't understand this whole millennial demographic. And to take a long story as short as possible, the idea we came back to them with was, you know, first-time homebuyers don't understand mortgages. They don't understand interest rates. But when you talk to them, you're talking to them like a bank numbers and uh, some sort of animal or a happy couple to try to make them understand it, but it's so confusing. So the idea we had was have a 30-something guy wearing a cotton shirt and khaki pants talking about mortgages for a minute. Six months later, that guy was wearing a suit. Six months after that, he was wearing a tie. And then another six months after that, they said, you know what? What if he's more like Anderson Cooper until the campaign was eventually canceled, right? Classic slow-moving bang. But over that two-year span, I got a good look under the umbrella how slow moving they are, how out of touch they are, how antiquated the processes are, but most importantly, the total lack of transparency. I was close to buying a home at that point, and I was confused working with them for that long. I couldn't imagine being a consumer. So when I actually bought my first home and was going into the process, I didn't go to my bank because I was so jaded by the process. Looked online, and I found these rate aggregation companies. That confused me even more because I'd apply, and then i get called saying, hey, this isn't for you, this is for you. Then through a guy, through a guy, there's that classic Spaceballs line, my friend's former college roommate, right? It was like the most random way to find someone. I was put in touch with a classic mortgage broker. I had an hour and a half phone call. Then I got sent a four-page Microsoft Word document to print, fill out, scan, and send back. Ton of back and forth. I had to meet at her office. She had to meet at my office. I had to go meet at Oakville at the broker. And I just said, holy shit, there's got to be a better way here. And that's where the initial idea of HomeWise came. 
as first-time homebuyers, we're 45% of the market. And that's not just a 30% a 30-year-old person. That's new to Canada, right? How many Canadians move here every single year? I think about like my co-founder is new to Canada. My wife is new to Canada. That is our country here. Right. And it's so difficult to find your way there. So that's where the initial idea came was how do we simplify the home ownership experience? And those influences from my jobs, my life experience, but also this problem I had really led me to say, this is the business to start. Because I tried a couple other startups before with some buddies here or there, and they didn't work out mostly because of people, right? People is the biggest issue with starting a startup. If you're not all fully invested in it, like my co-founder, Carlos, is 52 years old. He was chief risk officer and head of operations at multiple massive corporations. He took one of them public. The guy worked in my basement. Like this is a guy who took zero dollars to work in my basement. Other people weren't willing to work part time on the side. This is a an executive willing to do that, and that that was really a big thing to say. I'm gonna you gonna take a full dive into this business. Yeah, for sure. That's incredible. I think you had a very strategic approach to even like learning. Um, and how you mentioned from MLSC how you would go talk to the tech guys and just pick up ideas and pick up things and then do leadership events, right? Lunch and learns and things like that. I think that kind of propelled that to where you are today. Um, but one thing I wanted to understand here along that line is kind of how did you how did you bridge the knowledge area? Like you had a lived experience kind of buying a house and seeing how weird the process is. Um, but just kind of the background of, of understanding the business, understanding the industry and things like that. How did you kind of gather that knowledge? Um, did you did you have a mentor? Did you go to course? Like, what was that for you? There's a couple things. So I, I can reach into my cupboard here and pick it up. People don't make too much sound. I have a binder that's this big that I printed up about probably a thousand pages of just different learning in the mortgage space. It was articles about what's going on in Canada and the U.S. It was a whole mortgage uh, guidebook on how to become a mortgage agent because I took the test to become a mortgage agent at the same time. And I remember when I was running my business, I took a business trip to L.A. and I read half of it on the way there. I read the other half on the way back. I highlighted stuff. I checked stuff. And when I say half, it was probably like half of the first 100 pages. But it's the fish sounds bigger when you tell the story, right? Um, but it's one of those things where I just try to learn as much as possible. I immerse myself in the culture. I call people who worked at companies that were doing similar things in the US and the UK. I spoke to friends. I luckily have a lot of friends who are entrepreneurs. So I met with them to, to germinate the idea with them. And one of the things is, is getting to understand mortgages is one thing because I started to get that. But learning how to be a startup founder is another thing. And one of my friends is the founder of one of the top B2C fintechs in Canada. You can imagine who that is. And one of the pieces of advice he told me is create a version of your website in PDF before you even do it. And that really was a difficult task because I said, okay, I have to understand what questions to ask, but what answers people will want to give. So I created this PDF and I sent it to a hundred people. And one of the questions on there was, what's your social insurance number? You know how many people answer that question? My mom, one person, right? So everyone else was uncomfortable giving their sin to their friend over an email. And that was a big eye opener because we saw companies in the space asking for SIN and we heard a lot of drop off was happening in their applications as we start to get, to get information outside there. So speaking to people and again, networking has been that one key thing I've talked about along the way. Getting the advice of others is so important because they have so much knowledge and insight and hindsight that's so important to get. And making your own mistakes is going to happen. That you guide, stop yourself from making certain problems and and, and guide yourself in the right direction by by learning from some of theirs and learning from what worked and what didn't work as well. 
Absolutely. We love that. We, we like even through with our podcast, we've speaking to a lot of founders and that seems to be the most common um, kind of perspective that they have. Networking is, you know, you can learn anything on the fly, but that people experience and seeing the experiences up close is what kind of teaches you the things that allows you to make those kind of transformational changes. Right. Um, so when we speak to those people or when we speak to our audience, one of the things, one of the questions that we get is, you know, I want to explore something in a different industry. I want to explore this opportunity, but I don't have that skill or I don't have the background or I don't have um, that knowledge. Um, so to that kind of audience, what would be your best kind of advice, um, whether if it's in the up and coming entrepreneurs or even just, you know, students coming out, um, trying to figure out what they want to do with their careers? Yeah, I'd say don't try to force it. Um, I mentioned these startups I tried to start before. They were all fun ideas. One was called Red Light, Green Light back in 2009, which was basically Tinder, right? Love the idea. But it was such a fun idea. We thought, okay, this could be a cool thing. You see somebody you like green light, you see somebody you don't like red light. Why didn't it work out? Because I didn't have passion for it. It just wasn't what I was interested in, but it was a fun idea. Then I had an idea for something that was all about recruitment from university students. And I was starting with my boss at that time who then left to a different job. Still an awesome idea. And there's been a companies who've done it since that are massive companies, but we didn't have the time. We didn't have the effort. We didn't have the team. So it's, it's don't try to force stuff. Try to learn and, 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 and gain experience along the way. I also consider myself very well listened. Uh, I listen to a lot of podcasts and audiobooks. I'm not well read because I hate reading. It's a waste of time for me. I'd rather listen to an audiobook while I'm walking, biking, driving, whatever it might be. Uh, try to be as efficient with my time as possible because I am an entrepreneur, but I also have two kids. So measuring that along the way is not always easy to find the time. Um, but read books, listen to books, listen to audio, uh, to podcasts. There's so many golden nuggets that you get out of these. I still remember this, this sounds dangerous, but it was seven years ago. So I think I'm past that double jeopardy time frame. Yeah. But I remember driving to General Mills, which was 45 minutes from my house, listening to audiobooks and writing down quotes that I like from it. Now I type it in my phone, which is also dangerous, but I would do that as I was listening to them because there was, there were golden nuggets that I'd have along the way that were, I would put into presentations at work. I would ideate, I'd put them into my pitch decks for my business. Like there's so much external knowledge there available to you that it's really helpful, but also you, you get influence. Like I'm not a big fan of, um, oh, what's his name? The marketing guy who everyone loves. Um, uh, Jerry. No, he's okay. The, 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 the slide has the gray hair that's like this. Uh, he's all about the marketing porn. Uh, whatever, whatever his name is. Who is it? Gary. I'm thinking Gary V. Gary Vaynerchuk. Yeah. Oh, okay. 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 I'm not a big fan of that of saying, force yourself into it. You can do it because you're a master. No, like, I look and at my friends who started businesses. They, they have all come from places where they learned things along the way. They were faced with a problem and they want to face it head on because they see that they could, they could create a solution for it. And they're the person. And I'll say this much. When you raise your pre-seed and your seed round, no one cares as much about the business as much as are you the people to execute on this. Right. Right. And I just think there's so many people who try to force themselves into a situation saying, I want to be successful. I've, I've heard so many people tell me, Jesse, I want to be a billionaire. Like, the heck does that mean? Yeah. What does that mean? I never started this business because I wanted to make a ton of money. I started this business because I wanted to build something exciting, right? Like that's why we do it. Yes, there's the things that come along the way that if you're successful, you can make money, you can build your career, all these things. But that's not why HomeWise was started. It was 
we could we could really build something exciting here and, and make a difference in the world, right? Like, and a lot of startup founders think they're going to make a difference, and it's a lot of hoorah, look at me, how great we are. But buying a house is really freaking hard. Banks make too much money. Consumers are really confused, and we want to make it really easy for people. Like, I've had people cry to me on the phone when we started the business that they were so happy to get approved because they didn't get approved somewhere else because they only went to one bank and we went to many for them. So it's like, that's exciting. And that's, that's what should get you off the ground. And if you make a billion dollars because of that, well, everything to you. But if you make $50,000 and get a great lesson over a four year span, that's almost just as valuable from a business career building perspective as it would be. So it's, there's, there's, there's a lot of key influences you have to think of as a startup founder. And I just don't like Gary V. I'm not a fan of that mentality. It works for some people. But I, I just—that's not who who I'm influenced by. It is what it is. Uh, so I'd love to kind of go into actual uh, the company now, Homewise, and kind of where uh, what you guys are doing. So one thing I always love to understand is, you know, where did the name come from? You know, it's a pretty you know seamless, smooth name. Uh, I love to understand where that name came from, and then if you can kind of get into the growth, the early day growth of like maybe how you got your first 100 deals done or, you know, in the mortgage space, let's maybe narrow that down to 50 or something like that because it's sure. not as significant. Um, so uh, I'd love to hear that story. Yeah, so name was actually something that was really important to me um, because you want to be memorable, you want to be easy to understand and you want to be SEO mobile. And there was a company in the, in the market in the US called Morty. So I Googled their name and I saw 1,500 million results for Rick and Morty. Right? <laughs> That's not good SEO. The name sounds cute. They're doing well as a business. But how do you Google that business right off the bat? Right. So what I actually did is with my business partner, we had a whiteboard and we put down all the names of startups we like. Wealth Simple, Wealthfront, Borrow Well. They all sort of had something in common. What the business is and how it makes you feel. Wealth Simple, Borrow Well. Loved all those ideas. So I always want to put home in the name. I like I like home because it's not about houses, it's not about condos, but it also isn't about mortgages. And I'll tell you that as I tell you what our business is, is because we couldn't mortgage wise, but that's not who we are. Yeah. And we and HomeWise was actually one of the first names we had on the board. We just couldn't get the URL because it's owned by Whirlpool, but whatever. We own HomeWise Canada and think HomeWise and all these things, but maybe one day we'll find a way to persuade a laundry company that we should own the URL. Um, but that was it was a big journey for us to find the name. We had names like Homeable, and it was hard. To, it was a lot of words to say in your mouth. And um, Homewise is just one that really stuck with us, and we love it. We think it it delivers on what we're looking for as a business, and it sounds good, right? It doesn't have one of those weird names like Kazoo or or, or I don't know if you ever heard that YouTube video of the guy with Bing. When Bing was first created, he got fired because he wasn't hoorah about the word Bing. And it's a funny video for anyone's listening. Watch it later because this is better right now. But um, that was really important to us when starting the business is just have a name that's really self-explanatory. But when we think about our business, we're, I mentioned we're also home-wise, not mortgage-wise. Our vision for the business was how do we build the end-to-end homeownership experience? And I'm forgetting the second part of your question. Uh, just the growth pattern. We can get into that. Uh, okay, growth. The first, the first 50 to 100 customers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we self-funded for the first eight months of the business. Uh, I sold my whole company. Use some funds from that, worked in the base of my house. We made no money for the first couple of years. First 50 customers was every person I've ever met in my entire life 
that I had an email address for, everyone I had on Facebook, everyone I had on LinkedIn, I sent them the same email. Hey, just started this business. We have a family and friends promotion for their first X number of customers. Love if you're interested in it. Here's a promo code. This is what we do. This is why we're great. You can apply right here. And that's how we got our first $50,000 in revenue. And I was like, okay, this, this something's working here. And I reinvested that $50,000 in marketing dollars. And now we got to $150,000. So that's, that's how we started to build our business with just grill tactics. We also made t-shirts that cost $7. That's at HomeWise in big letters. Got water bottles and on a very hot day stood in the corner of Young and Bloor and handed out water bottles and flyers saying, HomeWise, 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 HomeWise. And we got two mortgage deals out of that. Nice. Right? There's, there's so many things you could do off the start to just build your business and help us learn so much about how to do things, what to do. And, and that's the initial way we started the business. Then we raised capital and started to build the business from a business perspective. But you should never lose sight of the guerrilla tactics that get you to where you need to be. Because while simple, Mike Katrin, even two years into raising $30, $40 million, he was doing lunch and learns at companies, right? He doesn't have to do lunch and learns to 50 people. But if you've got two customers for every lunch and learn, they also, the other 48 also knew who you were and they tell two friends and tell two friends and tell two yeah, friends. Yeah, multiplies. Yeah. Total network effect, right? And the multiplier right there is huge. So that, that was a big thing in us starting our business was really being scrappy and yeah. uh, not resting on the dollars ahead. Yeah, that also like kind of reminds me like you, you also know Adam. Uh, so when we do, did our C fees or U fee at the time, uh, he would give out cookies right after um, we were done our exams. Um, so that, that was a good way to kind of get promotion of uh, LumiQ or at the time it was uh, Luminary. Uh, so that, totally. that was pretty interesting. And so I, I love the guerrilla tactics because zero cost to it is just hustle, right? So, uh, and honestly, um, those guys at, at Luminary, LumiQ are like so good at it. When, yeah. I, when they first started the business, I was so annoyed by how much they posted on LinkedIn. I was like, okay, guys, cool. <laughs> but then I'm like, holy crap, this is brilliant. They're creating a market for themselves. Everyone knows who they are and they're spending zero dollars on it. Yeah. And then I start, I, I don't post as often. I post maybe once a month. But every time I post, there's one good thing that comes from it. Every single time. Right. And it's just, those are things that people don't realize because they might overpost. They might post the wrong stuff. They might not post at all. They might say, I'll do it one day. There's so many tactics you could do to just start to build up your base and get people aware of key things going on in your business that, costs zero dollars right right um and so you were uh, earlier you're mentioning you're not thinking of us uh, as a company as just mortgages you're kind of going beyond that mm -hmm. scope and have a larger vision so can you maybe expand on that and um kind of also explain like how you're kind of thinking about making it the most user-friendly experience because we often find um, founders really focus on UI and making sure there's the least amount of friction to get to the end point of value, right? So uh, I'd love totally. to kind of understand your thought process on, you know, early days, home-wise versus where you're at today and maybe kind of the, uh, how, how you've evolved over time. For sure. So I'll start with home-wise early days, which is a mortgage company. We realize that the whole home buying process is broken because you have to find a realtor who makes too much money, then find a mortgage company. And where do you find it? You ask mom and dad to go to your bank. Then there's life insurance, there's property insurance, there's a real estate lawyer, there's movers, there's all these things along the way. And they're all disjointed. No one works together in the process. They're all making too much money and creating too much confusion and not offering enough value. It's a huge problem. And it's also one of the biggest industries in Canada 
Real estate is the one of the largest contributors to GDP in the entire country. It's a massive industry. So when we looked at mortgages and said, okay, this is our first foray because the mortgage is the nucleus of home ownership. People get pre-approvals before they buy a home, then an approval once they own the home, when they once they buy the home, and then they refinance or renew their mortgage at the five-year mark at the end of their term or three-year mark, whenever how long their term is. So we said mortgage is a great way to own a major part of the process. And, and you mentioned UX, user experience. To us, that was paramount. Um, Madara and BJ, who I mentioned earlier, they're both former ad guys, right? And if people in advertising know anything, it's consumer first. That's like yeah. the BS thing we all tell ourselves all the time. Consumer first, consumer friendly, build for the people. But it's, it's so important to think because I can't tell you how many websites I go to and say, an engineer built this. No consumer was thought about. Was no one consulted in this situation? Like, it's crazy. So we have really always focused for a mortgage business, which is built around people. So it starts off with a really easy online application that takes about five minutes. And we don't ask people tough questions because most people aren't mortgage experts. We don't even actually ask people if they want a fixed or a variable mortgage because we realize most people don't even know the difference yeah. until they speak to someone. So we have a really simple five-minute application. And then we actually we partnered with 30 different banks and lenders, actually more than 30 at this point. I think we're up to 35. And these are big banks like TD and Scotiabank, Meridian Credit Union. Uh, there's monoline lenders, all different types of lenders. Because most people think that you could only get your mortgage from a bank. But as an example, my first mortgage was the credit union because they had a better features and better features and better rate at the time. So what we do is when Jane Smith comes to our site, applies in five minutes, we then actually match her with our best three options based on her unique profile with the lender type, the rate, and key features that we color code based on good, okay, and bad. So she can visually see this isn't just a rate, but this mortgage has a high penalty if you break your mortgage early. It has great prepayment privileges. It's portable. All these different things are so important to the consumer that they're not seeing anywhere else when they go to a rate site that purely is based on themselves based on the rate. So we do that. Then in the background, we actually score clients. So we're, we're an AI business at our core. That's where my co-founder comes in. I'm the BS AI guy. He is a PhD in the space. Um, and it really helps us match clients with their best option, but also score them to guide their journey. Because when you're in a digital sphere, you're taking a lot of people's information in. So you want to make sure you're matching them with the right experience, both from a mortgage perspective, but also customer experience. That takes them from high to medium to low touch it, they're working with an advisor, they're going through a digital experience, or we're passing them off to the future. Uh, and then we guide them every step of the way from there. We have a whole online portal where they upload their documents, track their progress. They're never dealing with the lender. They're dealing with us only and their human advisor from our team. So we've just tried to make the mortgage process as simple as possible. And we've grown a lot. We've tripled our revenue every single year and continually grown, which has been exciting. We've raised just under $4 million to date. Um, but one of the cool things that we've seen, though, is our original hypothesis was we're going to get the first-time homebuyer millennial market. Our average consumer is 38 years old, um, so probably right in the middle millennial, like maybe the early phase of millennial because I'm 35, so I'm like the early-ish phase of millennial. Um, and roughly 76% of our users are purchasers. However, over half of our users signed up to us for pre-approval first before they bought their home. So 55% of our people came to us at the start of their journey. And we realized that that's a really important thing because they're coming to us. And if we don't introduce them to a realtor, then we're just losing that client. Yeah. Potentially, they can't go somewhere else. They might find another mortgage company or 
they might not even close. And we, we started to introduce them to realtors in our second year. We realized the second we introduced them to a realtor, their chances of closing on a mortgage increased substantially because people are innately lazy, right? I remember my first time getting a mortgage pre-approval. I just sat back and said, look at me, guys. I got a mortgage pre-approval, like muzzle top to me. This is awesome. But it really didn't do anything for me. It meant nothing, right? It was not, wasn't until I got introduced to a realtor that I take action. So we actually released a real estate brokerage back in December of this year called Home Lines yeah. Real Estate. So now when consumers come to us for a mortgage pre-approval, we actually can introduce them to a realtor and we're going to start to show them home suggestions tailored to their unique profiles. We've also partnered with a life insurance company. We've partnered with a property insurance company and we've partnered with a digital real estate lawyer. So if John Smith comes to us for his mortgage, we can give him his pre-approval, introduce him to his realtor, then introduce him all through a digital experience to his insurance and real estate lawyer all in one place. So what that means is they're saving a lot of time and confusion, but also a lot of money because it's all integrated in one place. The real estate business is our first foray into another product outside of mortgages. Our goal is to add more of those bottom and funnel experiences as well. We've also partnered with Jiffy so that when someone moves into their home, they get $100 off home services. So our goal is really when someone comes to us, they really feel that they're getting the full home ownership experience. And we have some special sauce that I won't talk about too much right now, but I'll hint on the fact that People generally get five-year mortgage terms, but banks will buy them flowers six months before they buy their home and then chocolate six months before renewal to say, hey, honey, I was still here the whole time. We're building a lot of really interesting tech and services for the full five years that they're not working with us, but also a high value at the four and a half year mark to decide, should they buy another home? Should they refinance or should they renew it to a different mortgage to really make someone feel like HomeWise is their home ownership platform and it makes them home wise yeah yeah nice, <laughs> nice plug there um, I, I really love the concept of you know just taking one idea and how you've kind of built the breadth uh and depth across the organization in different kind of verticals uh, i think it's so important um as an entrepreneur you know you figure out one thing and you're successful in it but i love how you you know through iteration you figured out you know most of those individuals are first time pre-approval or first time home buyers maybe and how do I kind of expand the business lines and maybe make the experience even better? So I, I love hearing those stories. Those are amazing. And uh, kudos to you to kind of, you know, building that out. Um, and one thing I noticed uh, you talking about earlier on was uh, the aspect of team. Uh, and one of the hardest parts about building a successful business is getting the team right and the culture right. So what has your philosophy been in terms of, you know, from day one of like, this is how HomeWise is going to look like? Uh, obviously, it's going to be a learning experience early days, but uh, what has that kind of uh, looked or how has that transformed uh, today? And um, maybe expand on those core values maybe that you've uh, tried to build into the organization. Yeah, you know what? Whenever we talk on a podcast or a place like this, you always hear the good stuff. And there's a lot of tough things that happen in businesses, right? Like we, we've had so many up and downs. We have months where we say, I remember March of 2020 when COVID hit, we said, this is it. Guys, this is great. This is great. No one's going to be buying homes right now because there's this virus and who's going to buy a home? We thought this could be the end of our business, right? There's those downs and there's downs that aren't even caused by a virus. But a lot of the downs happen based on people, right? And you mentioned people are the single, single hardest thing in a business. And I remember one of my buddies who runs a company uh, called Loop, Lending Loop, now Loop Card. And he wasn't telling me this. Someone who worked for him said, 
everyone loves him. They all want to raise their hand because they want to, they're, they're influenced by him. He gets them, them going. I was like, that's so cool. You want those people to work at your company. You don't, early phase, you don't want to just have employees. You want to have home-wise founding team members, right? Your first 50 employees are basically part of the founding team. Even though we're only at 18 people right now, we're still, we're still building people that we want to feel like they're a part of building this business because they are. Um, and people was difficult. We had people whose family members passed away early on who had to miss months. We had people whose family members had cancer who they had to miss some time. We had people who just stopped working out of nowhere and were like, what is going on right now? Um, we had people who just didn't fit the culture. Um, all that stuff happens. And you learn so many lessons along the way of who are the type of people you want to, to have on your team and who are the type of people you really want to invest in. And we hear this all the time that people leave companies because they were kept at a bad salary for too long. And when they leave, their boss is like, well, why didn't you ask me for a raise? And it's like, well, that's not the way it should work. You should, you should know this by now. And maybe I don't know to ask for a raise. And so we try to keep the people that are really important to us consistently happy and engage them. And that doesn't just mean salaries, increases and promotions, but also means including them in important parts of the business, engaging them on how to build the business. Cause if I said the best ideas that our business came from me, I'd be lying. The best ideas that our business come from every other member of the team who are living always different roles all the time. And my co-founder couldn't be more different than me. Uh, I mentioned he's 52. He's loud. He's Brazilian. He's, he's got a lot of opinions in one way or another. And if he gives me another marketing idea, our business will fail because his ideas are horrible. However, He's absolutely brilliant when it comes to his side of the business, operations, data science. And because we have such differing views, we'll go against each other. We'll have intense conversations. But in the end, we'll be like, oh, yeah, you were totally right. Or you were totally right. You know how they say don't go to bed uh, with your loved one in a fight? It never happens with us because we'll get into heated conversations, but we'll come up with a great idea in the end because in the end, someone else is the master of that area. And I just trust him on that. And I think that's the key word of every member of our team as we trickle down is hire people that you trust. We just brought on uh, our real estate broker of record, Josh. He's a guy who I met through someone who met through someone. I ended up doing my, for our first kid a couple of years ago, our baby classes with his wife. And I didn't really know him at that point. And we got to know each other over a two-year span. I really trusted him to join the business. And you look at so many startups who they hire someone who they've known for years. And you can't do that for every role. But when you think about it, Almost every role in our business has one degree of separation. There's so many people who have brought on people that have worked with them before or knew someone who knew someone. That's probably 25% of our business has no degree of separation. But a lot of our 18 people have worked with someone else on our team, knew someone else, got referred by someone else. And it's, it's a really important thing to think about because you're in the trenches with these people. And when times are good, they're great. But times are often bad as a startup. And that's even when things are going good, you're thinking about, okay, how do we sustain this? Like my, I'm a big nerd and I like to think of words for every year. Our, our home-wise word for 2022 is consistency. Because um, I brought up, I like sports analogies and I brought up Isaiah Thomas. And, I, and this is not Detroit Isaiah Thomas, I'm talking about Boston Isaiah Thomas. So I okay, say, okay. Right? Isaiah Thomas is not great. He's very good. He had two really, really good years. You know who's really great? Who's incredible? Kevin Durant. Why? Because he's consistently scored at a high pace every year of his career. LeBron James, consistently the best. There's Isaiah Thomas is out there. 
you don't want to be an Isaiah Thomas. Like I can't even find a job in the NBA after being an, almost being MVP four years ago. I don't want us to have a good year and then a great year and then a good year. I want us to have a great year, a great year, an excellent year, an excellent year, an excellent year, and so on and so forth. And that's a really important thing when you think about your teams. Like I always try to think if I'm an A, I want to hire A pluses. And I'll tell a story about that. Vince, who's our VP of mortgages, um, he was our, a reference check for someone on our team. And I had to call this guy. And this is early in our business. I got off the phone and I said, damn, that's a guy I wish we could hire on our team. I got to find a way to get this guy. The next day, he messaged me on LinkedIn saying, hey, Jesse, great speaking to you. Are you still hiring for that role? Because I'd be interested. And I was just like, holy shit, this is great. This is like the perfect situation. Vince has been promoted four times since he's been in our team. He's now our VP of mortgages. And like, I would trust my children with that guy on a drive through the most dangerous parts of Johannesburg where my wife is from, right? Like he is, he's just a guy that we trust so much with our business because he's so impactful, but he cares so much. And, and that's a big part is he's an A plus. And I always try to surround myself with people smarter than me. And that's been a big part of how we've tried to build our business. I love the people aspect of it. I love the sports analogies. Isaiah Thomas, uh, I, I had to think back to the last time he's been in the league. So that, right. is, a, that is a really depressing analogy, but it works. <laughs> I, get, I get where you're coming from. Um, but, you know, we can't talk about the housing industry without mentioning some of uh, the issues that are going on right now. So I wanted to take a step back and look at the macro here um, and get your insights from on, on that. Obviously, you mentioned earlier, um, real estate is one of the biggest or if not the biggest portion of GDP in Canada. So it's, it is huge for us. Um, there's a lot of noise in there right now. So we want to get your opinion um, on what are some of the key drivers that have led to what's going on right now. Obviously, we have one of the most expensive real estate in the world. Um, we're trying different strategies, but I'm not really sure on uh, what the what, what the success rate is on that. But uh, we want to understand your side of that. What are the key drivers of, that have led us to where we are today in, in the Canadian real estate economy? Yeah, I'm not gonna, this is not to sound political, but we've had one of the worst prime ministers when it comes to housing over the last seven years. Housing is up 100% since he's been in office. And people who say, oh, this is in the hands of municipal and provincial governments. As the prime minister, your job has to be to manage federal budget, but also deal with your constituents in all different areas of, of, of the country. And there's been zero done on housing over the last seven years. And when I say zero, there was a stress, te- stress test, which was fine, but it created a blip on the radar. Nothing else has been done. And if you speak to anyone in the mortgage and the real estate industry over the last five years, they'd all be telling you the same thing. There's too much investors. There's too much foreign investment. There's not enough supply. There's too much red tape. Regulations aren't there to help first-time homebuyers and, and, cha- and separate them from investors and second-time homebuyers. Uh, we need more inventory. Again, I'm going to bring that back. We need to build more homes, which is a really important thing. And nothing has been done. And if you look at uh, Pierre Polivera, who is running for the conservative leadership, Every single video he does on Twitter is about housing because he knows it's, knows it's a hot topic uh, item right now. So when I look at the last 18 months in, in Canada and housing, there's some major factors that have happened. Interest rates were dropped way too low, way too quickly without any other things done in place to sort of create some solving there. And the reason for that, let's be honest, is we put ourselves in a lot of debt during COVID and Increased prices of homes also increase land transfer taxes. So land transfer taxes are a great way to pay off debt. So if the influence of our government is to help pay off debt, they're not going to try to stimulate or, or lower 
the prices of homes. They're going to love the increases because they know they won't be in office for 20 more years. So they'll enjoy payback while they have it to say, hey, look, I didn't have such a big deficit. That's a big problem that our political system does not care about housing. So what, what, that's a big issue. Now, interest rates have risen heavily. My mortgage I got in June of last year was 2.19%. If I was at the same mortgage today, it would be about 3.79%. Okay, that's 1.5, 1.6% different. That's massive. That's a huge difference. That's potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars a month of difference of spend. Um, so that's going to help the market in some ways. And the reason I say it's going to help the market is roughly 30% of buyers in the last 20 months have been investors. Now, there was a statistic that was done in 2019 that said 30 to 40% of homeowners in Canada own multiple properties. That doesn't just mean they're investors. They might own a cottage. They might own their place for their kid. That's huge. That means that most of them are not first-time homebuyers, right? Who are buying these homes or, or end users. So I actually think the next six months can be a really good time for first-time homebuyers to actually get into the market. It sounds crazy. It sounds like prices are so high. Holy moly. Prices are going to start to soften. We're already seeing it. I, there's, there's houses that we see that are going for sale that are having no offers. There's houses that are going for sale that are going under asking. Another thing that happened recently was, unfortunately, a lot of people thought it was a great idea to move an hour and a half outside of the city because they're never going to go back to an office. You're going back to an office, people. It's going to happen. And if you're not, you're going to be in a similar role for the rest of your career because if you don't work with people at an office, you're not going to create that magic. And I, I totally understand um, mobile offices and hybrid model. We have not been back in office since March 10th of 2020, and we have no plans to do it. We have a work-at-home model at our company. Having said that, there's a lot of people that don't get the FaceTime with our senior leadership team that they would get if they were at the office. I remember working at General Mills. I was friends with our VP of marketing because I would talk about hockey with them, right? Like I created an area where we created a relationship. What did that do? It opened doors for me at the company, right? It, it created opportunity for me. That doesn't happen if you're separated by a screen. So a lot of those people who bought homes an hour and a half out of Toronto are going to start to realize the back to office mentality is going to happen. Even if their company has a fully remote model, there's going to be people who go in who are getting promoted more than them. So over the next 16 to 24 months, I think we're going to have a lot more people want to move back into major cities and a lot of change happen there. So that'll be interesting to see what that does to the market as well, because People who actually want to live in these surrounding cities, their home prices might drop as well. So there's, there's going to be a lot of movement that happens in the market. And a lot of things I'm saying are contentious because I'm clearly biased on this matter because I actually believe not enough has been done by the government. People have made bad decisions over the last 24 months where they've purchased homes and there's too many investors in the market, but this could lead to a really great time for first time home buyers to say, I might be able to buy a home at a reduced price than what I expected it to be five months ago. And I might not have that much competition, so I can I can lowball offers. And I just had a friend who bought got a house ten percent less than what the purchase price was last week. You know what that would ha- what would happen to a house based on purchase purchase price or the, the offer price or whatever the listing price? I mean, usually they're going for ten percent, twenty percent over asking. So it's like times are starting to change, and people are starting to realize. And I'm very excited to see where the next six to twelve months go because. I hope that we have a 10 to 15% drop in prices. I hope it's 30%, but that's not going to happen. So the rational side of me says 10 to 15%. And we start to say, okay, housing becomes more affordable again. And maybe there are, there will be new government uh, rules put in place. Because the ones that were just done by the, by the current government are total BS. It's all a BuzzFeed article. 
None of it's going to do anything. It's tough to stop foreign investment. Every foreign investment home is bought through a company in Canada or their kid who goes yeah. to school. Yeah. That's, that's how it's all done. Like the day it happened, there was a guy I follow uh, named Ben Rabideau. I think it was him who posted it. He's an insolvency guy who posted a picture of a student in Vancouver buys $13 million home. Let's be honest. He's not buying that house. That's bought from someone overseas who's buying the home through him. So you could say to your ban on foreign investment, but they're going to find a way to do it. So there has to be ways to help first-time home buyers and end-user buyers and separate them from the other buyers. So there's just a lot of work that has to be done. And I think it's going to be a very tumultuous six months in housing. Yeah. I actually had a add-on, uh, a follow-up question there. Uh, what are your thoughts on that uh, new pilot project with Realtor.ca around the whole bidding process and it being transparent? Uh, obviously, it's not active right now, but I know in other countries, they have like a live auction. Like I think it's Australia and Australia. New Zealand, those countries, right? Uh, where people can understand exactly how much they're paying where, without fearing paying like two, $300,000 over. In theory, it sounds great, but Australia home prices have increased as fast, if not more than, than Canadian, right? It doesn't work. And it's pro- been proven not to work in all these other countries. Now, it doesn't mean it won't work here. And I actually am interested to see if they'll try it here. There's talk. There's there's a lot of talk about Trudeau wants to end blind, blind bidding. And Ford came out and said, no, it doesn't work, whatever. We'll see. We'll see what happens there. I think other things need to happen. So a big problem that happens in the market is double ending deals. So there are realtors who act as the buying and the selling agent and they offer their client to price off. That shouldn't be allowed. Um, there's realtors who work within their own company and they give back information to a buddy of theirs and say, hey, give me actually $2,000. The deal is yours because they came in there. So more regulations in place to actually stop these bad practices from happening are going to be important. I, I am for the idea of non-blind blind bidding. I'm actually for it. I just don't think it's going to work um, because I think people will find loopholes and people will find a way to, to, to make it worse than it was. Because I'll give you an example. When I bought my home, I had an Excel document in front of me doing calculations of if this, then that, when I was going through the bidding process because I was bidding against one person. And I did, I did calculus to say, if I bid at this price, I don't think that they will go above it. If I bid at this price, I think they will, which will increase my price by this many thousands of dollars. If you have open bidding and someone says, oh, I would have bought that home for $800,000 if I knew that was the next bid was, then they might go to 805, then they have 810, then they have 830, and all these things happen from there. So it can actually lead to a heavy increase in prices because people are saying, oh, I would have done that. I would have gone to that level because oftentimes realtors say, like, give us your final offer. So I don't know. I'm for it. But... I don't think it's going to work. And we were talking about this right before you hopped on as well. You know, some of the new strategies are coming in. They're banning foreign buyers for two years. Um, Interest rates just are, this guy announced they're going up. So we were kind of curious to see how some of these things are going to play out. Um, But, you know, uh, we appreciate your opinions here because you're very candid. And I think we're kind of on the same page with a lot of that. Um, But one thing that we want to talk about is kind of what do you, what what would you suggest uh, for millennials, uh, especially in our age group right now, who are kind of getting their way into the housing market or trying to, uh, what kind of uh, alternative alternative options do you think are available to them um, that would not be otherwise kind of the direct route that we have? Yeah, I think the first biggest mistake people make is they go to mom and dad's bank, right? They think that's the only place I'm going to get a mortgage. 
And that's the way to do it. And what you get with mom and dad's bank is you know one option and a total lack of transparency. So obviously I'd love them to come to HomeWise and go through the process and work with one of our advisors. But I would say is work with someone like us at the very least who works with multiple vendors who you trust, who's going to give you advice. Get a pre-approval or get an advice on what you need to do to get a mortgage. Because there's some people, there's a term called the Henry, which stands for high earner, not rich yet. I love that term, right? Because there's people we know who are making household income of 150K, but they have $20,000 saved to their name. Well, get your finances in order. I can't tell you how many people come to us and we tell them, you can't afford this home because you're leasing a BMW 335. I still own a 2009 Honda Accord. I hope I own it for another five years. I absolutely love my car and I don't want to get rid of it. But I've also now have bought my, my second home already. Like I don't own two homes. I bought a first home and I leveraged that into my second home because I don't waste money on, on ridiculous things. There was an article, I don't remember which paper, the New York Times or whatever, like eight years ago saying millennials can't afford a home because of Avocado toast. Avocado toast. And as we yeah. do as millennials, we only read the headline and there was outrage. Avocado toast isn't the reason why. Well, you're telling your houses were so cheap in your time. They're so expensive in our time. You could yell at boomers all you want and blame them for it. But there's the reality. You don't need the newest iPhone. You don't need the newest pair of shoes. You don't need all the things. If you want to buy a house, you have to make concessions. And it sounds horrible to say, but you do. And we're talk, we, we talk with clients all the time. We're spending thousands of dollars a month on clothes. You don't need to do that. If you want to buy a house, save money. You don't need to go on that trip to Turks and Caicos. Save $10,000 and put it towards your house. Those are the things I, I think a lot of these millennials have to realize is homeownership is a long-term dream. And it becomes a faster dream if you take the steps beforehand to set yourself up for success. Don't take out big loans that you don't need. Don't get yourself into debt. Don't make decisions that are stupid. Don't buy a BMW 335 at 25 years old because it's cool. Even a 325, get yourself the right car. And if you could afford it, get the 325. Because there's no problem with enjoying the car. But if you can't afford it, don't do it. Right? And that, that's, it's a consistent issue that we see. Speak to a mortgage advisor who gives you the advice on what you need for a down payment and affordability. But also understand not just what you can afford in a home, but also closing costs and post-close. Because stuff happens. Stuff happens once you buy a house and you're going to have to be prepared for it. So there's just, there's a lot of things people need to do. And, and just being prepared is one of the key things. And you might not buy a house for a year or two years, but if you set yourself up for success, you'll be that much more likely to find the home you're looking for and, and do so quickly and efficiently. For sure. So those are things um, just along that line of tra- along that line of thought. Those are things that we can do better as we prepare for that. Um, on the other side, can you talk to us about the investment itself? So when we're looking at real estate, can you give us kind of your idea of what makes a good investment opportunity? Uh, you know, what are some factors that we should kind of explore before we make that jump? So I, I still remember my first realtor I had. Uh, my brother was started to work with her, and it was actually someone I know's mother, and. She did not understand me as a consumer. She knew nothing about me. She didn't get to know me. Um, and we'd walk into houses. I was looking at homes at Spadina and Bloor for $550,000. Could you imagine? And she would walk in and she'd go, oh my God, my vertigo. The floors are warped. My vertigo. And I'd say, okay, well, I guess I can't buy this home. Years later, I switched to a guy I knew who I trusted who was a realtor. And he'd walk into a home with crap floors and say, oh yeah, 
For $25,000, you could fix all the floors in this house, and this house is $200,000 less than the comparable. So that's one of the key things to realize is, and, and he said, you don't have to fix the floor for multiple years. You can live in this house like it is for at the start. So a, key, a couple of key things to think about is interview your realtor to find someone who you think meets your needs. Most likely a home-wise real estate realtor, but that's another story. Uh, but interview your realtor to find someone who suits your needs. But also realize you're not going to find your dream home as your first home oftentimes. And your home is not going to be perfect all the time when you move into it. If you buy a house that is fully renovated, once you move into it, you're spending a major premium on that home. If you're willing to live in a house that might not be perfect and you can do work as you go and you can accumulate assets and at the end of your five-year term, your house might have gone up in value by X amount of dollars, you can refinance, borrow more money against the home without spending a cent of your own dollars at that point and then do the renovation. And the nice thing is, is if you buy a house, I guess you throw out numbers, that's $800,000 that needs a lot of work done. In five years, that house is worth a million dollars. You could take out an extra $200,000 to renovate that house. And that $200,000 might make your house worth $1.4 million. So suddenly, on $200,000, you've made $400,000. So that's a really key thing for people to realize is a house is an asset, but it's also a liability. Because So if you buy the wrong house in the wrong way, you could end up losing money. Don't buy a house to flip it two years later unless you really know what you're doing from a financial perspective. And a really key thing to realize is a house is a long-term investment. So it's at least five years generally. But don't buy a house to say you leave here in five years no matter what, unless you have a plan. Because when you buy a house, there's land transfer taxes. There's penalties and fees that you might have to pay when you buy your next house with a, um, a mortgage company. You're also paying realtors 5%, right? So those are things to realize along the way is there's expenses. So create a plan. If you're buying your first home and you think you're only going to be there for five years, don't do a massive renovation on the home because it's not you're not going to make your money back. You just won't. Unless you know what you're doing, you're not going to make your money back. So really be smart about it. Um, I can't tell you how many homes, like house flippers as an example, They'll buy a million dollar home and they'll put $50,000 into it to do like a lipstick pig. You basically put pot lights in, clean up some of the walls, paint some things, cover up some vents, and then they sell it for 1.3 million. They don't do a $300,000 renovation and sell it for $1.4 million because they don't make their money back that way. So these are just all things to think about is be smart with your investment. You're not buying your dream home oftentimes the first time and really interview your realtor to make sure they understand what's important to you um, and be open-minded as well. I was looking at one part of Toronto and then my next realtor said, like, I live nowhere close to Spadina where I'm not even close to cool enough to live there. I've also realized, but it's one of those things where I know I'm 15 minutes North of that area. Right. So it's like be open to different locations and what be, might be interesting to you today and into the future as well. Yeah. I think that's so important. Just one, that valuable engagement that, and that trust that you develop with someone who has maybe experience or kind of understands who you are and what you need maybe today, but also in the future as maybe you might have a family and those are considerations that you make and stuff like that. Also from the investment side, kind of like also from your perspective, you should understand the numbers that go behind the purchase of a house. And I think people just buy it and eh, we can cover a 5k mortgage, that's nothing. And then something happens and then ooh, you're left with a uh, 5k of mortgage. You might have to sell the house and you're back to kind of stepping stone one. Uh, which I guess, again, so investment, I guess, is very important. Um, how we kind of like to round off the podcast is just uh, we, we mentioned earlier that you're very involved in charity. 
Um, and so, you know, speak to the importance of you being involved in giving back. Um, and maybe if individuals were wanting to get involved in some of your initiatives, how, how, how can they do that? Yeah. So when I, when I started, well, when we started the Joel Schwartz Memorial Hockey Tournament, which was the hockey tournament, one of the guys we started with was my friend, Zach. Zach was working at Credit Suisse. We'd walk to work every day because we lived close to each other at uh, eight o'clock in the morning. And he'd get home at about three in the morning every day because he worked at Credit Suisse. He did about 80% of the work for the first year of the hockey tournament. And I realized I'm making myself seem busy. I was living at my parents' house at the time. I was 23 years old. I would get home from work at six, watch TV, watch the hockey game, watch the Raptors game, whatever it might be. And I would just waste my time. So as I got older, I started to realize we have so much time in the day. And a lot of that time can be done to give back. So I started the hockey tournament, the volleyball tournament. I've been on two boards of different charities. I've done the Ride to Conquer Cancer five times. Um, I'm consistently trying to help out where I can in different initiatives. We're, we're currently building something that might not be released for a couple of years. So it's in the works right now. Um, but what I would say to people is just get involved. Like you could help so many people out. It doesn't have to be fundraising as well. You could go work at a food bank. You could do all these different things because we're all exceptionally fortunate, right? We're, we're, we, we, we often hit, you know, don't realize that we hit the genetic lottery by being born in a place like Canada where it's just, it's a paradise of a country compared to some of these other places where you can live. Like I mentioned, my wife's from Johannesburg. When we went to Johannesburg a couple of years ago, it was, it was horrible to see the state of where people's lives are, right? So, there's so many ways that we could help. Um, and if people ever want to get involved, like I have so many people who have reached out to me and said, Hey, I'm looking to start a charity. There's a charity called Swinging for Sinai, which sounds a lot like Serving for Sinai, our volleyball tournament. Well, because he used to be part of Serving for Sinai, he was awesome. And he started this golf tournament and they've raised a ton of money. And like get involved with people. If you want to build something off of it, just ask if you could help get advice from folks and, um, don't be afraid to, sl to slip into someone's LinkedIn DMs, right? It's not like a sketchy Instagram one. And chances are, if you send me a message, I will not reply the first time if it's the wrong type of message. I think that's how you reach. Did you email me or did you LinkedIn message me? Yeah, I emailed you. I emailed you. Right. Yeah. But that's fine. But if you send me a LinkedIn message and there was purpose to it, like someone wrote me a LinkedIn message saying the other day saying, hey, could you introduce me to this VC? I hardly know the guy. So I said, why? What's the purpose? What's the call to action here? What do you want me to do? If he said, hey, Jesse, my business is doing this. Where I'd love to get introduced to this person at this firm because I see you're connected to them. Do you think you could help? Happy to jump on a five-minute call with you to explain what we're doing to make it easier for you. I was blown away by his message. So I replied to him saying, what, why, how? And he said, I just need 10 minutes because we might be raising money. I just want to pick his brain. And I'm like, you just gave me nothing here. And it's just... Reach out to people, ask them for their advice, but give them the reason to do it. Don't just say you want to pick their brain. Uh, don't just say, I want to get your advice. Say, hey, Jesse, I I'd love to start a charity. I'd love to get your advice on how you started it, what the problems were along the way, and I'd love your advice. And listen, I'm not the smartest guy in the room. There's way smarter people to ask than myself, but I'm also happy to connect you with people or, or whatever. But just, I think the key is in networking, give people a reason to want to help you. Don't just expect them to help you. Um, and that's, that's too often a problem that people have is your email to me. I'm now remembering it. It was brilliant. You told me, you know, Berkovici, you did this with him. I saw you did this. Love that you're doing this. I'm like, 
I want to help this guy. This is cool. And he's reaching out for me to be on his cool podcast. I'm not cool enough for that. Like, there's so many cool things. I said the word cool three times, but there's so many things that maybe say, yes, 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 and. Yes, and I want to do this because of this reason and that and that. And that. I think that's a real missing thing. A quick aside to this, I can't tell you how many people in the early phases of our business, and even now, interview with our business without looking up anyone in our company, without looking up the business beforehand. We have people arrive five minutes late for interviews. It's complete and utter bullshit. I, I remember my interview at General Mills for a week. I was studying the company. I walked in with a piece of paper with questions for each person and notes on all the different products. Like, what are the Pillsbury products? And like all these things so I can answer their questions along the way. I, I'm just blown away by how underprepared people are these days because I feel like people think it's me, 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 me. It should come to them. So I think... It's a bit of an aside from the charitable side, but if you want to get into this, this part, it's not about you. It's about other people. And if you want to learn about it, reach out to people because you're altruistic and you want to do it for the right reasons and, and good things will come because of it. Yeah. And I think that's a perfect way to sum things up. Uh, you know, a lot of the founders I work with, the first thing I always try to work with them on is, hey, you need to learn how to cold email um, and act. The act of desperation is definitely not, um, you know, seen as positive. Um, and also, you know, like you mentioned, reaching out just cold and like, hey, give me that intro. It's like the sense of entitlement, I guess, in our society now is just like at an all time high. And I'm just like, dude, like kind of like lower the ego. You're mm-hmm. at like level zero and, you know, build a relationship with the person first. Like that's yeah. the first thing you need to do. Trust equals like success in the long mm-hmm. run. So um, a lot of people don't think that way. It's just like, yeah, he probably knows that investor. Maybe I know one of his buddies somehow. Give me that introduction to the thing. It's just like, that's not how it works. Uh, but yeah, man, I, I love how you kind of pointed that out. And it's funny. As a startup founder, I have to talk with an ego. As difficult as this is, is for me, I have to sound confident all the time. And I, if you met me in person, we had a beer, you'd probably be like, oh, man, you're, you're way calmer than you are when I hear you talk in these situations because we're bred to do this. This is what we have to do. And I think if you're someone who wants to work with a company, be, be yourself. Um, and be personable and to your point, like don't be a cocky asshole because no one wants to hire the cocky asshole. Yeah. They just they just don't. They want to hire the person that they want to work with because you're you're in the trenches with those people all the time. Exactly. Quote me on that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jesse, this has been great. One thing we like to do to end off all our podcasts is a quick lightning round where we'll toss a quick a couple of questions at you and just if you can tell us the first thing that comes to mind. Great. Awesome. So first question here, and uh, you alluded to this before uh, with audiobooks and podcasts and books, but we want to get your uh, kind of insight here. Can you tell us your favorite book of all time? Yeah, How to Win Friends and Influence People, 1940s book by Dale Carnegie, holds up today. I just reread it a couple months ago. I highly suggest that to anyone. For sure. We're adding that to the list. Um, If you can have dinner with one person um, at any point in time, who would that be? Larry David. Uh, I walked down the aisle of my wedding to the Curb Enthusiasm theme song. Love Larry David. Uh, I'd like, I'd love to say like some cool politician or someone awesome, but no, Larry David is my favorite person in the world. So nice. that would be who it is. Sweet, sweet. And on the topic of dinner and food, uh, this is our most controversial question that we have at the podcast. Do you like pineapples on your pizza? There's no place for a pineapple on a pizza. That's right. Good night. <laughs> <laughs> There's no way. No, yeah. I, I mean, we've had like uh, pizza a couple of times and Sheriston always throws us pineapples <laughs> on him. Just trying to take them off. It's just like, no, can't happen. Can't happen. It's soggy. Soggy doesn't go with pizza. 
whole yeah. point of pizza is melty and crunchy. Yeah. Soggy doesn't fit. Yeah, I think we're 50-50 with our guests for the main uh, for the oh, most I, part, but so it's far, yeah. yeah, so it's yeah. a contentious kind of battle right now. So I'm trying to win this, but you know, maybe <laughs> I'll uh, get more uh, friends of Jesse's to come on the show to get get you know side with me and more a bit more. Get a pizza bias here, but yeah, Jesse, this is great. We love what you're doing. Um, I think Homewise is going to be really incredible, especially for kind of our generation of people who are constantly overwhelmed with the real estate process. So we love everything that you stand for. Um, where can we find you? Where can people connect with you? Any last words here? Yeah, uh, our website's thinkhomewise.com. You can find me on LinkedIn. My name's Jesse Abrams. Twitter, I have some horrible tweets. I have some okay tweets. I have some funny tweets. And I hold back on a ton now. That's one thing they didn't tell you as a startup founder. You can't say anything. So um, I hold back on a lot of my opinions. Um, uh, I don't know, other places that are important, probably not. LinkedIn and Twitter are probably the only places. Uh, so feel free to send me a message if you ever want to chat. If I don't reply the first time, follow up. Make it short and succinct. Like the amount of LinkedIn messages I get a day is ridiculous from like, hey, we can build your SOC2 compliance for you. So be personal, be real. Literally send me a sentence. Heard you on the podcast. would like to talk for this reason. Happy to do it. Like, I love that kind of stuff. Um, and other than that, I, I, I think what you guys are doing with this podcast is awesome. Uh, I, I don't think enough millennials have, have the idea in their mind that they can, they can build a business. And a lot of them think that it's easy to do. And that's the last thing I want to say. It's, it's really, really hard. Um, you watch Silicon Valley, which is one of the best shows ever made. Yep. It seems like fun. It seems awesome. It's really difficult. Building in Canada is even more difficult, but there's a lot of great things about building in Canada. You don't have the same pressures as the U.S. startups off the start. You have some very smart people. You have very diverse people. If I look at our 18 people, most of them are not originally from Canada. Yeah. Right? That's what I love about our business, right? It is diverse cultures, diverse ideas, um, but it's not easy. So if you fail before you even start, don't get down on yourself. Try something else. And that's, I think, one of the things to always think about with a business. Even the most successful startups, fast.com, just failed last week. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Anyone can fail. The biggest giants can fall. So realize that it's not easy, but it can be a ton of fun. And it's, it's a great way to learn no matter what.